Father in heaven, I'm so grateful for a new day, a new morning, new mercies from you. And Lord, I'm grateful for this congregation that loves you and that seeks after you. And now, Lord, they expect to hear something from you. So, Lord, won't you come as a faithful shepherd to us, the great shepherd, and come and feed your sheep. This is what we ask you to do now through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we open up to Exodus chapter 33, starting at verse 12, we're going to consider something in this half of Exodus 33, the second half of the chapter, that, that, that I think is so amazing and so deep that I feel like I need to preface it just a little bit with some remarks. And this is what I mean. I was trying to figure out a way to phrase this, and maybe this is the closest I can come to sort of giving you what's on my mind and my heart about this. Just, just before um, we had our announcements, we had a beautiful time of worship. And there we were just singing songs. And I looked around the room and I could see it. I mean, I could see it on faces. I could see it on uplifted hands. There was a spirit of adoration and praise to God. People were just really adoring God and giving him thanks and honor for the great things that he had done in their life. Now, occasionally uh, I've seen uh, a film or a television program where they're kind of like filming people worshiping just in that kind of setting that we had this morning. And I got to say, when I watch that, it makes me feel kind of uncomfortable. I don't know if you've had the same feeling, but that's how I feel. It makes me uncomfortable. So why does it make me uncomfortable that they would be filming or videoing somebody in the midst of worship? Why? And I think it's for two reasons. First of all, because, well, if, if the, um, the adoration and the devotion that's spelled out on their face, if it's false, if it's a show, then it's phony. And I don't want to look at that. It's offensive. But here's the other aspect of it. If it's sincere, if it's true adoration of God, then I feel like I'm intruding on a holy moment that that person has. I don't want to see that. Let them have it between them and the Lord. And I don't know if you have the same opinion. I'm just sharing with you my heart about this. That there's something holy about how a person connects with God. That, that there they are, the individual meeting their creator, meeting their savior, meeting their redeemer. And there's something just so beautiful and holy about that that we feel sometimes like we're intruding on it if we were to sort of zoom in the camera and take a look at it. I kind of feel like we're intruding right here in Exodus chapter 33. Now, I, I know we've been given leave by the Holy Spirit to do it because he put it in the book. But this is a little bit awkward because here we come into this very holy, intimate, connected meeting between a man and his God. That there's something awesome in here for us to take a look at. And I'll say one other thing before we give our attention, starting at verse 12 of Exodus 33. The other thing is that I just want to freely acknowledge what I'm going to talk about today may not make much sense to someone who has no experience of real connection with God. If this is new to you, if you honestly say you don't know what it's like to connect with God in a very relational sense, in sort of this intimate sense of an individual, the creature and the creator, the, the redeemer and the redeemed, if that's new or foreign to you, then, then I I'm not, won't be surprised if a lot of what I talk about this morning just sort of goes over your head. But I ask God would give each one of us the grace to receive it. Verse 12, Exodus 33. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name. 
And you've also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you. And then I might find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. I suppose if you really want to understand what we're going to talk about this morning, it would be best for you to remember or maybe to go listen again to what we talked about the last time we were in Exodus chapter 33, when we considered the first 11 verses of the chapter where Moses was up on Mount Sinai wrestling with God, meeting with him in the sacred sense of his presence and asking God, God, we need you to be present with us as a people. God, it isn't enough that you bless us. It isn't enough that you give us stuff. It isn't enough that you give us a little bit of help along the way. We need your presence. We need you. And I got to say, I, I don't know if anybody else was stirred, but I was very stirred by that the last time we were in Exodus 33. I was stirred very deeply by this consideration that if I'm going to connect with God, it's not enough for me to say, God, I need the stuff you can give me. God, I need a little bit of help along the way. No, above and beyond all that, I need you, God. I want to connect with you. And this is where Moses was at. And now Moses continues in this bold connection with God. And he says, you have not let me know whom you will send with me. I need to know if I have found grace in your sight. Show me. Tell me. Speak to me. Just who is it that you will send with us to accompany us on the way to the promised land? I want you to notice. I don't know if you picked it up. Look at verse 13 here where he emphasizes this idea of God. Verse 13, he says, your sight, your way, that I may know you, grace in your sight, your people. I guess what I'm just trying to get at here is Moses is so focused upon the God, upon God and, and I mean this hopefully in a reverent way, he's God-obsessed. Everything is about you, God. Everything is about your sight, your way, knowing you, grace in your sight, your people. It's all about you, God. This isn't about Moses. This isn't about Israel. This is about a man seeking to connect To his God. Now, after this beautiful outpouring of his heart, look at how God responds to Moses at verse 14. He says this. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Isn't that a beautiful answer? God, I have to know. Is it you that's going to go with us? Are you going to send some lesser angelic being? Is it you that's going to go with us or some flunky from the chorus of angels in heaven? No, Lord, I need to know, is it you? Is it you yourself that's going to be with us? Because nobody can touch or satisfy my soul like you can. And then God says, verse 14, you read it right there with me. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. How beautiful. God says, yes, Moses, uncle, I give in. You've been begging me to have this, to be with your presence. Yes, Moses, you've won what you've asked for in prayer. My presence will go with you. Now, what I find fascinating is, first of all, notice this. He connects you. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Very simple principle. I don't need to belabor it this morning. But just to say this, the presence of God means rest and peace in your life. I don't mean to imply for a moment that means the absence of trouble. Not for a moment. Listen, sometimes getting your life right with God will bring more trouble into your life. But God will give you a rest in the midst of the trouble that is his precious gift to give to his people through his presence. My 
presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And as I said before, I said it sort of jokingly, but I kind of mean it where God's saying, uncle, okay, you get it, Moses. You get what you've asked for. Now, this is what I love about Moses. Moses still does not give up. Look at what he says in verse 15. Then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. I find this absolutely bold, maybe even a little bit strange for Moses. Let me put it this way. He asked God, God, please send you yourself, your presence with us. And God says, OK, I'll do it. And then Moses answers back. No, no, no. God, really do it. I, I, you have to do this. It's almost like God, God, you would expect God to say, all right, Moses, already give up. I already said, uncle, what more do you want? I've given you what you've asked for. I promised it. But there is something glorious in the prayer of Moses here. You know, and I was searching through my mind for the right vocabulary word to use. And I'm going to use a word that nobody uses anymore. I wouldn't be surprised if many of us don't even know what this word means. It's the word importunate. If I was a little more on the ball, I would have put it up on the PowerPoint slide for you. But here's the word importunate. I say, well, what does that word mean? Well, here's the dictionary definition. Importunate means persistent, especially to the point of annoyance or intrusion. It's funny because I was thinking, oh, can't there be a more modern, you know, word that everybody will lack? I, I clicked on my, you know, computer thing on the thesaurus for the word import. Nothing came up. Importunate. This idea of, yes, God, you're not going to let go of me. I'm going to hold on to you. I'm going to say, yes, Lord, I must have it. It's that same attitude that Jacob had when he wrestled with the angel. And he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. God, I'm just going to hang on to you until my soul is satisfied. And I know you've spoken your word to me, but I need assurance. Would you please, you know, say it on top of each other again and again. I need this, God. And Moses comes before God in a way that we could maybe simply describe as being importunate. And he says, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us out. We don't even want to go, Lord. If you don't do this, if you don't make good on your word, it's not worth us doing then I love what he says in verse 16. Look at it there in your text. It says, for how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight except you go with us? Lord, there's nothing you can give us that would show us that you're really with us. You could give us the promised land. You could give us help along the way. But Lord, we don't need those things. What we especially need is you. And then he said this something really remarkable. Did you notice it there in verse 16? He says, he says, how will they know that we have found grace in your sight, except you go with us, so we shall be separate? Moses wanted something for Israel that would show that they were not like all the other nations. Oh, they're not like the Egyptians. Their God is with them in a special way. Oh, they're not like the Assyrians. Their God is with them in a special way. Oh, they're not like the, the Hittites. Their God is with them in a special way. And this is what he knew. He knew that only the unique, powerful presence of their God, only this covenant relationship with Yahweh, this unique example of ethical monotheism in the ancient world, that would make them different from all the other ancient peoples. God among them would make them different. And I just need to be very straightforward. If God is really at move in your life, it's going to make you different. 
I I don't mean different in every way. I I doubt if God is really at move in your life, you're going to start dressing like an Amish person and driving a buggy through the streets of Santa Barbara or whatever it is. I I doubt if God is really with you, you're going to start speaking in King James English and all that kind of thing. No, no, but there's definite ways that the presence of God at work in your life will make you different. You see, if others live their life with very little purpose, don't you want to be different than that? If others can't seem to have fun without being intoxicated, don't you want to be different than that? If others are dishonest and they cheat on their taxes, I thought I should say that as April 15th approaches. (laughs) If others are dishonest and they cheat on their taxes, shouldn't you be different than that? If others run after this and that, according to whatever the fashion of the culture or the the, the spirit of the ages, shouldn't you and I be different than that? Now, what's going to make us different? Friends, a list of rules is not going to make us different. Let's make out the great big list of rules. Okay, do this, don't do that. Definitely don't do that. Double dog, do this. No, we're not talking about a list of rules. We're talking about the spirit of God, the presence of God at work in a life dominating a life. And honestly, here's our problem. Oftentimes, oftentimes we feel so insecure about who we are in Jesus Christ that we desperately don't want to be different. It's as if we want to shout to the world, hey, everybody, look at how just like you we really are. Friends, this world doesn't need people who are just like them. They need people who have the presence of God in their life that make them separate in the appropriate ways. Again, I'm not talking about, you know, dressing Amish or something like that. But I'm talking about different in the appropriate ways. That is something that God uses. And so it was important for Israel to know this for themselves. But it was also important for the other nations to know this. Now, notice this. He says this in verse 17. He says, so the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken for you have found grace in my sight and I know you by name. It's like again, okay, Moses, I give up. White flag of surrender. You have prevailed with me. You've been bold enough. Can I use the word again? Importunate enough to come and ask these things. And now I will give it to you. Now I grant you these things. These things are yours because you and I have come together in this beautiful relationship and have received it from me. And then verse 18. Verse 18, Moses. If if he was importunate before. Look at him now in verse 18. And he said, please show me your glory. Moses won a yes answer from God. God, we need your special presence with us. Yes, God said, I'll give it to you. Um, uh, uh, God, we need a confirmation of your presence. We need you just to make it all certain and sure. God says, yes. God, we need you to be in our lives and make us different. We don't want to be like all the other nations. Would you do this in our life? God says, yes, yes, I'll do it all. Yet for all of that, Moses was still not satisfied in his relationship with God. Everything that he had experienced from God up to that point just made him want more. And now he gets so bold, maybe even a little bit crazy, 
to say, show me your glory. Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher of Victorian England, he thought about this text and he wondered if perhaps Moses, when he said those words, please show me your glory, if he wasn't somewhat like Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Peter asked for something, not really understanding what he said. So Moses, do you really understand what you're asking for? Do you want to see the transcendent God full in his radiant glory with how that confronting you so strongly right there? Can you bear the radiance of his glory? It's like saying, God, put me within a mile of the sun. It burn you up. You can't do it. But yet he asked for it. And this hunger for more of God, for more of an experience with God is really a mark of revival. It's a mark of restoration of fellowship. You see, whatever Moses had experienced with God before, and it was impressive experience with God that Moses had enjoyed before, he wanted more. And I'll say this. A mark of someone who truly knows God is this. They want more of him. If you've ever really known God, it's evidence in your life that you want more of him. And if a person is just sad, well, yes, I had enough of God. And, you know, it's like, great, I... You know, I ate that and I never need to eat it again or something like that. You wonder if they ever really experienced God in who he is. So Moses continues on this idea. It started earlier in the chapter but that God's people should want more than just his blessings, more than just his help. It's appropriate for them to want him. So he says in verse 18, show me your glory. Now, friends, when we talk about the glory of God, it translates an ancient Hebrew word. And and I know my pronunciation won't be good, but I'll just give it to you in essence. It's the ancient Hebrew word kabod. And kabod not only has the idea of glory, but just as much, it's very much linked to the idea of weight. It's something heavy. If it's light and fluffy like cotton candy, if it passes through and then it's soon forgotten, if it just sort of whisks around and never makes an impression, you have every reason to wonder, was that really the glory of God? Because Chabad, the glory of God, it has weight. And Moses isn't just saying, would you please bless me? Would you please help me? No, God, I want to connect with you. I want to feel some of your weight, some of your essential presence. And by the way, if I if I could just say this, and I feel it's important for me to say this, it makes me question sometimes what sometimes passes for the glory of God. When there are theatrics, when there are, you know, just sometimes silliness that happens and people cry out, oh, it's the glory of God. It's the glory of God. I want to know where's the Chabad? Where's the weight? Does it have any substance to it? If it's really the glory of God, it's not going to be like cotton candy. It's not going to be here today and gone tomorrow and just pass through and it never makes an impression. No, it'll have weight and substance to it. So now verse 19. Then he said, this is God's response to Moses. I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. And I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. Now, this is so beautiful and so powerful. 
when Moses cries out in the earnestness, and maybe maybe he's too bold here, I don't know, but he cries out and he says, show me your glory. You know what God says? He says, I'll show you my goodness. I'll make my goodness pass before you. You know what this shows us? It shows us that God's glory lies in his goodness. And when Moses saw the glory of God, his first understanding was that God was good. And if you don't understand that God is good, you don't understand very much about him at all. But I'll say this and I'll say this in tenderness. I don't mean to beat anybody over the head, but there's some of you. You just need to correct your idea of God because you fundamentally think that God is not good. Ladies and gentlemen, just like the scriptures say, taste and see that the Lord is good. And when you think about all the different ways that potentially God could have revealed himself to Moses, he didn't reveal his justice to Moses. Is God a God of justice? Absolutely is. But he didn't say, I'll make my justice pass before you. He didn't say, I'll make my power pass before you. The God is a God of power, is he not? He didn't say, I'll make my wrath against sin pass before you. All those things are absolutely true about God and his character. But when he says, when I really want you to know who I am, I'm going to show you a glimpse of my goodness. You're going to see it. Friends, there's sometimes people who feel that they need to balance God. As if God is sort of made up, and I'll use sort of Eastern terms. Um, a yin and a yang, you know, a positive and a negative, you know, like and, and sort of our job to balance God between those two things. You know, there's a light and a dark. There's a good and an evil. There's a law and grace. And really where you're going to find God is somewhere right in the middle between law and grace. As if there's a balance. Where's God somewhere in the middle between good and bad? No. In that sense, there's no balance to God. He's all good. He's totally unbalanced in that way. There's no bad in him whatsoever. He is entirely good. And even his justice and even his power and even his wrath must be understood as aspects of his goodness. So when God means to reveal himself to Moses, look at what it says there in verse 19. He says, I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. You see, in the thinking of the ancient Hebrews and also in other ancient cultures, the name represents a person's character. It represents a person's nature. And God said, I'm going to reveal my character to you. Now, look, this is what you need to understand. The fullness of this. I'm going to feel bad for saying this. Is for the next time we're in the book of Exodus. It's in chapter 34. No, really, if you were going to miss a message, this was the one to miss, not the next one. Don't, when, when the Lord proclaims who he is, well, it's just a flow from an amplification of this. It says, I'm going to declare my name to you. It's okay, you can read ahead. That's entirely permissible. But notice this, verse 20, he says this. You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. Now, God would not, indeed, he could not literally show Moses his face because the Bible tells us that no man can see God's face and live. Yet we have other passages, like in Exodus chapter 33, verse 11, where it says God spoke to Moses face to face. Well, friends, when it says that God spoke to Moses face to face, it's using a Hebrew idiom that has the idea of free and unrestricted speech. In other words, they conversed freely. But please notice this. 
that Moses could not look upon the glory of God and behold it. It would be like somebody being a mile from the sun. You'd be burnt up. You'd be consumed. There'd be nothing left. Yet God says, as much as I can reveal myself to you for your own safety, I'm going to reveal myself to you. And that's going to happen in just a moment in verse 21. But I want to read you this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great expositor. He does wonderful work on this particular passage. He gives the idea of what God said to Moses. He says this, quote, I will stoop to your weakness. I'll let you see something. But much more important than that, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. I'll give you a deeper insight and understanding into myself, into my character, into what I am. This is what you really need to know. And so here it comes, starting at verse 21. And the Lord said, here is a place by me and you shall stand on the rock. And so it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. God was about to reveal himself to Moses in a completely unique way. God prepared the event carefully. He gave Moses a specific place to stand. Okay, Moses, you want to see as much as me as you can see without perishing? Okay, first, you've got to stand right in this place. And by the way, let me just add this quickly. Later on in 1 Kings chapter 19, the prophet Elijah met with God and had a remarkable experience with God. Some of you remember that? Where God wasn't in the earthquake or wasn't in the storm or wasn't in the lightning, but he was in the still small voice. That very well may have been at the exact same place where Moses stood right here. Because both of them took place on Mount Sinai. And God says this, you stand right here, Moses. And then verse 22, while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. God's glory could not remain in front of Moses. It had to pass him by. But even with that, Moses had to be protected by the hand and the cleft of the rock while the glory of God passed in front of him. And friends, this is a vivid and an enduring image. It's as if this, God puts his hand in front of where Moses is in the cleft of the rock, and then he passes by, and then he puts his hand back and withdraws it, saying, Moses, see that? We're going to see it in just a moment, get a little better understanding, but this is it. Protected by God, Moses could endure the glory of God. And passing before him, he had this great experience. When Isaiah saw God, he was aware of his own sin and unworthiness. When Paul went to heaven and experienced something of the glory of God, he saw that he couldn't utter it. But here, here, it's such an amazing experience that Moses, he hardly has the words to describe it, as we'll see in a moment. And this is what I want you to know, that other people beyond the times of the Bible have also experienced this presence, this glory of God. And I would not doubt that there would not be more, that there would be many people in this room who would give a similar testimony. This is what I mean. I, I think of the great colonial theologian in America, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards described the time, and by the way, Jonathan Edwards was the most brilliant theologian that probably America has ever produced. He wasn't a flighty man given off to, you know, Weird experiences, but he described a time of praying in the forest, kneeling for an hour that seemed to pass in just a few moments because of the powerful sense of God's glory and presence. Have you ever experienced something like that? 
another great colonial man, uh, the greatest missionary, perhaps, of colonial America, a man named David Brainerd. He described uh, a kneeling in the snow and praying for hours, literally sweating in his body, though it was freezing outside. Now, why would a man sweat in his body just praying, even though it's freezing outside? I'll tell you why. Because he was so aware of the presence of God, it was a physical reaction to his spiritual reality happening to him right there. Or another man, D.L. Moody. He sought God for just this kind of experience where he sought God in the same way Moses did, saying, show me your glory. And when God gave it to him, Moody says he had to ask God, pull it back, pull it back. I fear that I'll die under this. You see, friends, there's just something to this. It makes us see that what many people speak of today is the presence of God and the glory of God seems so trivial to what Moses and Isaiah and Paul and Edwards and Brainerd and Moody experienced. There's no kabod to it. There's no weight to their experience of glory. And this is what Moses was about to see. Notice this, verse 23 says this. I will take away my hand and you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Moses could only see God's back. Now, I don't think based on the Hebrew word that's used there and based on the context, I don't think it means God's physical back because God the Father has no, you know, physical presence. The word back that's used there in the Hebrew is often used not for a literal, you know, anatomical back, but oftentimes it's used just for the behind of something, the after effect. I've heard it explained very well, and this is probably, I think, this is what it means. It's sort of like the tail of the comet being the back of the comet. Moses, you can't see me, but you're going to see the after effects of where I have been. One commentator named Kaiser says this. He says, the word could just as well and more accurately be rendered the after effects of the radiant glory which had just passed by. It's as if the God says, Moses, how are we going to do it? You stand in the cleft of the rock, that protected place. I'll put my hand over you. I'll pass by. And once I'm safely by, I'll withdraw my hand. But then you can see the after effects. And that'll be all the glory that you can handle. And he saw it. And you see what God was doing. God was revealing himself. God was concealing himself. God was blessing Moses. God was protecting Moses. And all of these things happen when people truly seek God in the way that Moses sought God. And with all those special protections, God rewarded the desire of Moses to see as much of his glory as humanly possible. So let let me conclude with this. First. Can I give you just just the encouragement as a pastor that you should seek the glory of God? Oh, not in some manufactured, manipulated way. I think we should despise all of that. But that you would plead to God as a man or a woman before him and say, God, there's something there that I can experience more of. Lord, would you guide me into it by your Holy Spirit? I think God would do that. Now, listen. You'll have to let him do it in his way and in his time, because I'm not going to say how God will work that out for you in your life. But no, God will do it, I believe, if you'll seek him for it. But then secondly, 
And perhaps more importantly, as marvelous as this experience was for Moses, it cannot compare to the revelation of God given to us in Jesus Christ. Let me just end with this. Two beautiful passages from the New Testament. So I want you to think about this. Think about, you know, fill your mind with the display of glory, with the greatness of it all to Moses, with all that Moses experienced. And now I want you to put in frame of reference to these two passages. Ready? First, John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. You want to see the glory of God? Look to Jesus. Look to who he is. Look to what he did for you. Look to who he is. Look to what he did for you. And God will display his glory to you. And then secondly, and I'm not even going to comment much on this. I'll just read it. Let it fill your soul. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse 18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. If you experience the glory of God, it'll have a transforming effect in your life. It's not fluffy. It's not light. It's kabod. It's his weight. Father, that's my prayer. I know this is the prayer of your people here this morning. Even though uh, in some ways, Lord, we sense our dullness and insensitivity to these things, At the same time, Lord, we simply cry out before you and we say, Lord God, show us something of your glory. And to see that, Lord, we look to Jesus. We look to who he is and what he did for us, especially what he did for us on the cross and demonstrated by the empty tomb. We look to you, Jesus, and ask that you would show us some of your glory. And Lord, when we experience it, Let it have transforming power upon our life. We're not doing this, Lord, just to be spiritual thrill seekers. But to come into real contact with the living God through his son, Jesus Christ, and have our lives transformed. We pray this in Jesus' name.